Welcome to season six of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across ocean and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn brewery. But I think it's important that people understand that you could open a tasting room and it could do $300,000 in sales. And when it's all said and done, if you make 15% on it, you're talking $45,000. You have four of those locations What's it costing you to manage those facilities? You're probably not going to make 45K at each one. Hey guys, today I have a story for you that's very special for me. Lost Abbey is a brewery out of San Diego that needs no introduction. Tommy and the team over there have inspired breweries all over the world to push beyond the ordinary and intentionally create new and exciting beers of circumstance. They were a fundamental part of what created my perception of the expectations I wanted my brewery to live up to. And I know I'm not alone in that. I also know that I'm not alone and that my brewery fell short of those expectations. We've talked repeatedly on the show about how specialization is dead. Nietzsche gets stitches, as if I started saying. So 14% ABV beers aged in multiple barrels for multiple years. Obscure, even historical styles, and yes, even mixed culture sour beers have been shrinking in popularity and subsequently profitability. The Lost Abbey was one of the pioneers in the American specialty brewery category. So when I heard that they reduced their square footage, equipment, and staff, I knew that it was a story I needed to dig into and share with you guys. So Tommy was nice enough to sit with me for two hours, answer my probing questions, and share what he found out the hard way. There's backstory, pain, business lessons, hope for the future, and of course, insights into how not to start a damn brewery. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those, how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, Tommy, I want to welcome you to the show. I want to thank you tremendously for sharing your insights and everything that you've learned being, uh, whether you want to admit it, one of the pillars of the craft beer industry. So thank you for joining us today. You know, it's not my pleasure to be here, but I'm here, so let's go for it. Let's make this real, right? I, I have a, I have fun with it because every time someone says thanks for having me, I always just kind of roll my eyes. What, are you, what else are you going to say to a host besides thanks for having me? Oh, you're welcome to tell me to fuck off if you want to. I don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Happy to be here, not here, right? So I, I think we've got a lot to learn today, and I'm super excited to you know pick your brain, hear what you've been through, and kind of what you see coming. But first of all, let's start at like the beginning of the beginning. Who the hell were you before you were Mr. Lost Abbey? How'd you get into this? Like- so I graduated high school, went to college, and uh, spent four years in Flagstaff, Arizona, studying English language. Then developed a real love for beer while I was studying, and somehow just really was convinced that beer was something I really wanted to do. So I graduated in 1995, moved back to San Diego where I was born and raised, and 
didn't really see a future in beer, but just kind of was beer adjacent, still drinking a lot of it, exploring. One day, I just kind of lucked into a job opening for an assistant brewer position and applied for it. And that, that kind of uh, you know, was me putting my foot in the door, and I, I haven't left since. Was that with, I'm guessing, Port? No, that was with a little startup brewery in downtown San Diego called Cervecerias La Fruta, which is a fancy way of saying I'm hungover in Spanish. <laughs> so I worked, I worked for the Hangover Brewery. Uh, which seems kind of stupid at the time, but I, I wasn't in charge of the naming conventions. Classic uh, startup operation, not enough cash, not enough uh, great decisions, and they basically made it almost a year. But uh, in that year that we were open, we managed to go to the Great American Beer Festival in 1996 and won the very first gold medal ever for a brewery in San Diego. Really? That's, yeah. even, that's hard for, to believe when you say it like that now, considering obviously where San Diego yeah. is. But, okay. Yeah, so 1994, Pizza Port won a bronze medal for their barley wine. No, the guys at PB Brewhouse won the first. They won a gold that year. So it was the third medal ever won, but uh, just not not a thing you would see back in the day. Brewers from San Diego didn't win medals at, at major competitions. So talk a little bit about that because people nowadays think, oh, everyone should be a brewer. It's the coolest job ever. But in the 90s, that's kind of – it's not just contrarian. It was almost like you're doing what? Like how, how did you make this decision to just go, I'm going brewing? Yeah, I mean, it was like, is that even legal kept coming up? You know, it was <laughs> like, you know, we, you know, I remember my, my grandmother, bless her soul, she said, Oh, you can't do that. You're just going to become an alcoholic and drink 24-7. And I'm like, Grandma, you don't understand. This is really, really hard work. But yeah, nobody nobody knew how to make beer back then. And nobody knew anybody that knew how to make beer. And people didn't really even drink this kind of beer. So it was a very different sense of life. But, you know, there was people doing it in their homes. There was, you know, beers starting to get out there. But in 1995, 96, there just wasn't a lot of craft beer. I mean, I bet you there was less than 10 craft breweries in San Diego at that time. It seemed like a very odd thing to do at the time, but I was super young. I mean, I got my first brewing job. I was 23 years old, so I, I was footloose and fancy free enough that I could afford to be naive about what the industry was like. What were you going to be before? Is it an English degree? Was that? Yeah, I moved back to San Diego, and I had gotten into the master's program at San Diego State, so I was sort of, I told my parents that, that I would at least attend one class and see how that was, and I hated it, so it didn't take much for me to, to, to decide that I really... I really wanted to try to see if I could figure out beer. So luckily they supported that. Okay. So fast forward to how does that version of Tommy decide that he needs to be the owner of a brewery? How, how does that come about? Yeah, I was lucky enough when I was at Lacruda to meet the people from White Labs. And Chris and Lisa gave me a job after uh, Lacruda closed. And I was working with them on doing some developmental stuff. And then a position opened up at Pizza Port. And I was supposed to be a, a temporary brewer at Pizza Port, and I kind of worked my way into a full-time position. So after Recruita, after White Labs, I spent nine years as the head brewer at Pizza Port in Solana Beach. And that's just kind of, you know, that was those were my formative years. That's where I really figured it all out. What I say is figuring it out, but that's meaning that I, I figured out where I could go and what I wanted to be and how I could use beer and the artistry that I wanted to kind of you know, display. Beer became that vehicle for the artistry. So it just made sense. It all kind of clicked. Do you remember you had great batches, you had questionable batches? What's one of the dumbest mistakes you made as a brewer back then? I'd love to share mine too if you want. <laughs> you know, we, we did a lot of stuff. We were constantly trying things, but I ended up, for whatever reason, attempting a smoked Weizenbach. And I don't like smoked beer, and I really don't necessarily drink a lot of wheat beer. So I would say that that's probably one of the bigger mistakes that was kind of made, was just honestly brewing something that I, that I had no passion for or even real strong sense of why we should be doing it. It just kind of ended up happening. But that beer didn't sell at all. So, Well, it's interesting though, and obviously the industry has changed dramatically. And you had a lot of that. Like even when you read Red Hook's story, Red Hook had infected beer for like the first year and a half. And I think in a way that makes you stronger as a brewer to have the space to be able to truly fuck something up 
taste it, learn from it, know that's not in your wheelhouse and move on. And I just don't feel like people have that now. Like you can make one bad beer and you just people move on to the next brewery. Yeah. You know, we were lucky in Solana Beach when I was at Pizza Port. There was a really good drinking clientele there. A lot of, a lot of beer was poured through that location and people were pretty forgiving. There was probably 25 to 30 beers on tap at any given point. 10 to 15 of which could have been house beers and then some guest beers and things. So there was always a lot of turnover. And so for a brewer, I was given a lot of latitude to just kind of chase what I wanted to chase. But ultimately, there was a few things that we made that just didn't sell. And that, that certainly was one of them. And so from the Pizza Port model, at some point you decided that you were going to open Lost Abbey. And so I know what it kind of was in the 2010s and, and you know what kind of what you guys make now. But was that always the idea that this was going to be a completely different brand that made these unique and esoteric beers? Or does it just was going to be your label? And how did that come about, the inspiration to do Lost Abbey specifically? So my partners at the time were Vince and Gina, and they were the owners of Pizza Port. And so we kind of all got in a room and said, this this makes a lot of sense. And a lot of it was tied to Stone having decided that they wanted to move from their original facility in San Marcos to the big new facility in Escondido. So their brewery is available. I personally was at a point in my life where I knew that I couldn't be a brew pub brewer forever. And it just kind of fell into our lap that there was this opportunity to, to build a micro brewery. You know, Pizza Port had been really in the, in the brew pub business for so long, um, and incredibly successful at it. And everybody knew the beers. And so now it was just a function of let's put something for this, this name you know, the Lost Abbey name out there. Let's take all these Belgian-inspired beers that I want to make and let's make a run at it. It's one of the most interesting parts of the entire Lost Abbey story is that it was not my name. It came from Vince. It was his idea. But I grew up Catholic and I grew up going to Catholic grade school and high school. And so I knew how to play within the, the sort of the, the narrative and the storytelling and kind of bringing all the English sort of pieces full circle. And so that's where Lost Abbey kind of grew. You know, it was an idea. It germinated. I kind of latched onto it and then we I embraced all the Belgianness that we could and pushed this thing out and breathed life into something that had, had really had never, never been seen. Okay. So the departure was, you mentioned that you knew you couldn't be a brew pub brewer forever. How would you define the difference between the two kind of brewers and why did, why was that a career change you needed to make? I think economics more than anything. I mean, it's just a function of, you know, what, what's the earning capacity and how are you going to behave? Part of it is boredom. I mean, there's only so much you can do in a brew pub environment. You know, there wasn't a tremendous amount of room for oak and things and sour and packaged beer and long-term, you know, aging and vintage and all that stuff. So, you know, we were doing some really cool beers, you know, in the nine years I was there. But at the same time, there just wasn't enough room to really go explore. And we built, you know, the Abbey, you know, in 2006 when we opened, we built it with a barrel room. We built it with sour and non-sour. We built it with you know, all kinds of ideas and we were able to ex- execute on those ideas, which just really wouldn't be that doable in a brew pub environment. Now, there's some hybrids these days. I know plenty of breweries that have been built around that, but in terms of where I was at, at a beach brew pub, there was no extra square footage. There was no place to stack photos and things and do all that. Yeah. Now, I've been to a lot of brew pubs that try and you're sitting at the table and there's a stack of barrels next to you and you can do that. But uh, for a variety of reasons, that's not a very great idea <laughs> from a business perspective. No, it, in an environment where there's a lot of flour in the air, it's not ideal. So what was the business plan? Primarily sell on site? Was it going to go to distro? And, and again, this is 2006, you said? Yeah, so we opened in May of 2006. Uh, no, from day one, we knew from day one it was going to be a distributed brands. Uh, we knew there was going to be dual lanes. There was going to be port brewing brands, things that grew out of pizza port and then there was going to be the lost abbey brands a lot of those newly branded recipes or newly branded beers um, that might have been done in the pub at one point but they really weren't known out in the trade so you know we had a belgian inspired channel which was the abbey stuff and then we had a 
kind of a West Coast or West Coast centric hoppy side of things. And it allowed us to have two dual income streams. We had very much a distributed brand stream for hoppy things in West Coast. And those were more things that went to the distributor. And then we kind of built the following around the Abbey brand being, you know, much more niche and, and less, less about mainline and no grocery kind of stuff and more about you got to come see us to, you know, come see us and we'll tell you all about it. Well, from a guy from Texas, obviously most of the things that I tasted were going to be the one-offs and the, ex- you know, the expensive and cool shit. You guys did have some core products that you sent to grocery also within that lineup? Yeah, very little on the Abbey side that went to grocery, but we definitely had some, some port brands that, that they'd get into grocery. Um, but it was never a real push for us because it was, we weren't a six pack and we weren't a volume based company. Everything was, was large format, 22 ounce. And on the Abbey side, 750 ml cork. So didn't really have a big push um, at a volume level. So you know, there was a very different sense of how we sold beer. But that's that's how beer was sold back then. There was a lot of opportunity for sampling. There was a lot of opportunity for crossover. You know, your neighbor could make something, you could make something, and you'd be on the shelf at the same time. You know, now the sets are a lot more homogenized, and everybody's trying to sell beer into the same places. Yeah, and the sets are scheduled six months in advance. <laughs> it's yeah, a different ball game for sure. One big question I'm always going to have. I don't know if you know this, but I actually used to own a mixed culture brewery as well. So it was very esoteric outside the lines and a fucking bitch to sell <laughs> the retail. From that perspective, I'm curious. Like, how did you decide on a recipe? Were you inspired in the way that you could just come in and have tasted something at a restaurant and been like, "Man, I want to recreate this"? Walk me through the process of building some of those early Lost Abbey beers. You know, I was lucky because we'd done so much experimenting in Solana Beach, and it was an oversized seven barrel system. So, you know, let's call it a ten in terms terms of malt and charges and things. And so, the scaling from a ten to a thirty wasn't terribly difficult. It's not purely linear, but we were able to kind of, you know, really eyeball it, get really close on a lot of stuff. So there was a lot of confidence to just translate ideas and recipes from the past or take new ideas and then just convert them into full-fledged 30-barrel batches because we just didn't really make a lot of mistakes. If anything, it would be more of a process tweak to yeast profiles, things like that. A lot of new beers came out and a lot of those beers weren't piloted at any true scale. It's just kind of like we've done this enough in the past. We understand how these ingredients behave and let's let it ride. You made a combination of, in my opinion, some interesting concoctions in the sense that some were very high alcohol, some were kind of that low alcohol Belgian mixed culture, barrel aged, long-term beers. In your mind, how do you put those two styles together as far as from a cohesive branding? Was it just that was creative and I went the way I wanted to? Or do you see some tie to those different styles together? No, I think more than anything, we just went with things that we thought would work and flavor was king. And I guess we never really concerned ourselves with how to approach the sale of it because the sale was basically we made something awesome and if we make something awesome, people are going to want it. And they did. So, you know, there was no real rhyme or reason as to how they were sort of corralled or pigeonholed or otherwise. It was mostly just, do we think we can get away with this amount of it? And if we, if we make it, will they come? And, you know, they did for the most part. You know, there weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of things that we made that didn't sell through. Um, so that was very rewarding. We're going to get to some of those beers that I have tried in here in a minute. But one question I have is from a packaging perspective, did you guys go mm-hmm. straight into bottles in the beginning? And from the brew pub, did you have experience with that or was that a learn curve also? No, that was a huge learning curve. And that's a big part of our history was we went through a phase where everybody called us Flat Abbey because we just weren't very good at the bottle conditioning part of it. But a lot of the bottle conditioning stuff that we were attempting wasn't uh, terribly straightforward. We were doing a lot of high alcohol barrel aged things, a lot of sour things. And it took us getting to the point where we invested fairly heavily 
in a good, good amount of equipment, and that included buying a Gehaltimeter and a Anton Par alkalizer. And you know, we're talking about nearly $200,000 of control kind of equipment that allowed us to measure starts and stops and finishes and bottle CO2s. And so we were able to take a look at our process and say, this is what we think we're getting. And, and instead of having a measurement that you say, oh, I've got 1.1 volumes of CO2 and I'm starting and it's really 0.5, we've got two totally different bases to perform from. And once we got a control of outliers, all of those pieces kind of fell into place. And then we became very confident and competent in being able to bottle up to 15% alcohol bottle condition groups. So uh, it wasn't without a lot of trial and error. And I've been wrong before uh, once or twice in my life, but I thought I remembered an article that you guys also started using a bottle conditioning specific yeast at some point. We did end up getting to a champagne yeast, but I mean, we went through all of it. We went through building tanks that were specific for spinning and homogenizing. We, we built a glycol loop for the back of our bottle conditioning tanks that actually ran the glycol through a hot water loop. So we were able to take the beer from being cold to, to 55 degrees for packaging. We've got a dedicated warm room that was very large in volume so that the airflow at package time, you know, when you load cold beer into a small room, the, the delta changes really quickly. But if you take a lot of beer and in a large room with a lot of airflow, you don't drop out the temperature. So therefore, the bottle conditioning process we just became far more predictable, but it took a lot of those steps along the way to get really good at it. But if you travel to breweries in Belgium and places where bottle conditioning is done, you will see the exact same things, which is giant rooms with lots of air and a lot of process improvements, you know, dedicated to getting the beer up to temperature quickly so that it can do its job. You don't want to make the yeast go dormant and the yeast love to go dormant when it's cold. I, that's one of the biggest learning curves I had in the brewery. And you guys have a very consistent, and, and we talked about the branding a little bit and kind of the story that you told with your Catholic background, but did you hire someone to do all that graphic design and design the labeling from the beginning? Because I think you have a very cohesive message. And you know, if you see a Lost Abbey bottle, it's obvious what it is. Most breweries don't do that. So how did you come into that? It's a very interesting story. So obviously, growing up Catholic, I saw a lot of you know religious imagery. But for me, we knew that there was going to be three parts to every bottle of beer. There was going to be the outward expression of art, which you know was sort of inspired by the the beers of Canada and the Unibrew, and just the really heavy artistic sense of the label. And then we knew that the art on the back of the label would be basically the verbiage, so that's the word story that goes along, and of course the the artistic of the liquid itself. So three parts to every bottle, all focused on art. But I was really lucky because I inherited. An artist, um, his name is Sean Dominguez, and Sean is a muralist here in, in San Diego, and he did a lot of work for Pete Support, and he was able to really bring all of our images to life. So I've been basically the art director for the, the bulk of the, the time that we've been doing this, and so he and I would, would sit down and we would discuss, okay, I want X, Y, and Z. I want the four horsemen, the apocalypse. I want this tension between heaven and hell, and, and he was really good at bringing those sketches to life, and so when you see a lost Abbey bottle and you know it's a lost Abbey bottle, it's because of the imagery that we've created and it, almost all of it has been under his you know, creation. I, mean, I would give the art direction and he would fulfill it. But you can tell almost 100% of the artists is his. Um, and that's been really cool because I think in the last 17 years, we've probably created you know 85 to 100 different art pieces and we own all that as original art. And so it's just a really cool sense of what makes a lost Abbey beer a lost Abbey beer. Yeah, and I think it's an imperative part of the 
branding for a brewery and being able to stand out, particularly in a sea of 10,000 different Me Too's, it is, it's completely obvious that when somebody does it, and it's even more obvious when somebody copies it, which I have also seen that, you know, someone's inspired by it and flies a little too close to uh, kind of infringement. It just looks like a lost Abbey beer, in my opinion. So I think that's, that's cool. And I think every brewer should learn from that. And if you haven't had a chance to go check out the Instagram feed and look at all this stuff, you should. It's a great example of doing it right, in my opinion. I appreciate that. It's been a very strong sense of our are, you know, we've really held to it, but it's, it's been hard to do it lately. It's not, it doesn't sit on the shelf well anymore. It doesn't sit on the shelf the way that it used to, but that's, that's just the way things have gone. Have you seen the new Lost Abbey branding that we put out? I looked at the Instagram feed uh, yesterday, in fact, to kind of like go through what's yeah. on there. So I've seen there's both the cans and the bottles and some of the new bottles. They're very dark, but I think it has that cool look to it. Did you write, you mentioned the stuff on the back, the, uh, I forgot how you termed it, but the description basically in the back. Did you write all of those? I wrote probably 90% of them. Really? Um, there's a few that, that I definitely didn't write. Yeah, you can always tell the ones I wrote because they're really verbose and they're impossible to read because I was trying to get too many words on the back of a label. But yeah, there's there's a lot of me on, on those on those labels. And, and some of the ones that aren't me are, are very fun because I, I love to point out that that's not my narrative. But at the same time, I love I love the fact that we were able to get stuff out into the market that, that wasn't always just what I wrote. Yeah, I would actually redo my labels way more than I should have. And it was almost always dependent upon I wanted to add something to that. And so I needed more space. So I'd take off something else or whatever so I could add an extra sentence to my description in the back. But I love to hear myself talk, obviously, which is why I have a podcast. So take that into account. The hard part was when we went to the 375 milliliter bottle and the back got really small. <laughs> Cut it all out. So it was really difficult to tell the story in the back. It is funny. The not as widely known as it used to be, but of all the beers that we've ever made, our Red Poppy is the only bottle that we've ever released that had no backstory to it. And that was just because, yeah, I felt very strongly that the Flanders Red sort of style didn't need us to tell a, an homage back to Rodenbach and things like that. We kind of just wore it as this is our tuxedo label and there there is no words on the back that say it's made sour cherries in 18 months and stuff like that. It's just, it's a blank label, which is kind of funny. Yeah, it's cool. My my very last beer when I sold the brewery, it was released maybe eight weeks later because, of course, bottle conditioning. Uh, I actually called it Peace Out Bitches, but all the – because it was a brew pub. All it was was my thumbprint dipped in paint on the bottle. There's nothing else on there. And it was basically a farmhouse version of Duval in a sense, like that kind of like – I want to hear a little bit about kind of how the expansion went as far as like outside the state, kind of distributors and all that. But uh, like I told you, I wasn't going to have a beer till the second segment, and I don't have a beer, and I'm ready for the second segment. So let's take a quick break. I'll be right back here in a second. Okay, perfect. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, welcome back. I've got myself a beer. Uh, you have yourself a beer. And now I want to hear about some of those good times, about the growth and the exciting part. But how long did it take you... Let's start with that. Like, how long did it take you to get out of California as far as like distribution? Yeah, so we opened in May of 2006, and by the fall, 
of 2006, uh, we had already worked towards Arizona. And so we'd started in Southern California. Stone Distributing was doing our distribution. And then we went to Arizona, signed up with a company called Little Guy Distributing, and then knew that we needed to turn our attention to Northern California and elsewhere. But the big push of getting out of California really happened in 2008. We ended up getting into Chicago and Boston and Philadelphia and Seattle. And for the early part of the build out, we were looking at more of a hub and spoke kind of model. And we were trying to high spot some of the big, the big beer cities. And so we ended up in Philly and Chicago and Boston, Seattle and Denver. And, you know, we kind of ended up in these places where craft was, was very established. And we wanted to kind of use that as an, as an opportunity then to, to look at whether or not there was a capacity to be regional or to be regionally serviceable. But. For the most part, we, we ended up just kind of staying in the big the big suburban areas. So did you have a strategy? Uh, and that was probably eight years after you and I started trying to do the same thing and met with tremendously more resistance than you probably did. But did you pick certain distributors that understood the esoteric and unique beers that you guys made? Did you go with AB houses? Like what was the thought there? To this day, we've never been in an AB house. Congratulations. Yeah. We ended up probably in more independent houses than anything else. We've been with a lot of beer and wine sort of places, and it's served us very well in a lot of the places that we would knock on the doors and kind of sign up with. You know, they had they had other big bottle stuff in their book, you know, or they had craft specialists or they had beer specialists or, you know, they had a craft footprint. Because, again, we were not really chasing any kind of what amounts to be a volume thing. We weren't looking for somebody being you know in the grocery channel we weren't looking for merchandising we weren't looking for those things what we needed were were really passionate people on the street that could sell a, a half barrel of ipa and could then turn around and sell a 200 dollars six dollar barrel aged barley wine so we needed beer we needed beer people so you did kind of leverage the advantage of having let's say quote unquote regular beer in addition to lost abbey beer when you were shipping yeah we you know there was a point in time where when we were sending beer to the east coast we were half truckloader or so we never really got to the to a huge truckload kind of level, but we were able to get to, you know, 10, 12 pallets going to distributors. And that was a mixture of everything from 200 cases of IPA to X amount of six bowls and half barrels. But the mix was always across the board, both port brewing and lost Abbey things, but more so, you know, obviously hop, hops, you know, for the most part hold more than the Belgian stuff, but there was always a really big blend of things on the truck and it wasn't just two beers leaving the building back. Uh, that was one thing that when I started distributing, I realized having an esoteric brand was harder because you didn't have something regular. And so I, we would partner up with some other guys here in Texas and ship on the same pallets. It's really tough to be in the niche business, for sure. Yeah, definitely harder now than it was, but uh, it's definitely not easy, no, nor consistent. Yeah, I don't know that it's. I don't know that it's gotten any better. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend anyone be specialist anymore. I, the more I've researched it, the less I see success in that. And unfortunately, everyone that makes something outside the bounds and unique. Is struggling and it's very frustrating because those are the beers I like, but clearly the uh, consumer's not backing me up on that one. Yeah, and that's that's a big part of like kind of where we're at is just trying to understand how that how that's going to behave moving forward and to what level and what what is the consumerism one year, three year, five years down the road. Where are we today and, and what what is going to boomerang back and what isn't coming back ever? Yeah, well, if you figure it out, let everybody know because I don't know anyone that's figured it out yet. I do know people who have said that, but they're wrong in their assessment, in my opinion. But so. yeah, that might be the first time I could I could pretend being rich, right? I could I could sell the million dollar idea. Yeah, no shit. How did you kind of do the distribution thing? And, and this is a question for anyone kind of considering distributing outside their state. Did you send beer? Did you make phone calls? Did you fly out? Like, how did you pick a distributor, court a distributor, and then expand into that market? 
sometimes it was mutual. Sometimes it was singular. And oftentimes we would be contacted. I will say that one of the things that we did and might have been to the detriment or at least to a, a sense of things is that we didn't sign up in territories um, where we didn't think it made sense. And I will give you a, an idea. We had an opportunity to, to send beer to New York State. Uh, on any number of occasions that we never launched the state of New York, even though we went into New Jersey. And a lot of that was just tied to kind of the footprint and what it would take to get beer into that footprint. But we also were protecting our brand and we were protecting our brand rights more than anything. Of course, today the brand rights are worth a far less than, than they ever you know were back in you know the heyday of everybody selling for thousands and thousands and billions. But brand rights, are still to this day very valuable. And especially when you're talking about distributors and them not letting go of brands or, or, you know, them holding things, you know, we tried to have partners. We tried to have people that we really thought there was a long-term you know, opportunity with, but for a while we were fielding phone calls regularly. And a lot of those territories just didn't make sense for us. And so you think New York didn't yeah. make sense that they, it was like a franchise state and they were going to take your rights essentially, or what do you mean by that? Yeah, there was, there was a lot of sense of like, Hey, if we go do this and we don't do well, what's, what's going to happen? And I don't know that it was the right decision because we probably could have sold more beer in the heyday. But as of right now, we don't lack our brand rights in a major metropolitan area. We don't lack our brand rights in Texas, you know, so things like that. And. Even in so much some of the other territories where we used to be, um, we've worked to get our brand rights back, even though we're not actively shipping beer, you know, to those territories. So those cities, those states, those distributors. So I think we were trying to be protective of what we are. And you've seen a lot of breweries that got over their tips and they, they agreed to ship beer to everybody. And that necessarily wasn't a great footprint. The inch deep, mile wide, never, never benefited anybody. Well, it's an interesting lesson that I don't know if I've, been able to share on the podcast, but as you were growing, anybody would have probably talked some shit and said, hey, that makes no sense. Why would you not sell beer everywhere you go? Now that you've retrenched and you're considering what lies in the future, these are massive open opportunities that you can capitalize in. Maybe, maybe they're, they'll open up to something new, but had you been tied up with some brewery yes. that wouldn't let your rights go and let you die in those markets, those opportunities would have been there and the, the consumer would have already been tired. So it looks like in hindsight, at least it's a smart idea. Yeah, it certainly plays out to be smarter. I'm not looking to, I'm not looking for the pat on the back here. It's just one of those things that I think a lot of brewers forget. And that is, is that, you know, the distribution brand rights and, and contract law and franchise law and all that stuff. It's expensive. It's crazy. You know, it can be crazy litigated. It's a lot easier to say no than it is to say yes. But some people said yes because they were chasing something that they thought was in front of them and it didn't necessarily materialize. You know, we, we have plenty of brands in California that grew past the 100,000 barrel mark or got close to the 100,000 barrel mark that are nowhere near that in a, on a watershed level anymore. And, you know, what, what does that get you? But at some point, if the brand is still ongoing, your rights might not belong to you. It's a cautionary tale. So you mentioned the heyday, and that is something I always want to make sure to highlight. What, what were some of the good times? What are the, what are the, times when you're just like, man, we were, we were killing it. I'm so proud of X, Y, Z moment or whatever. I think the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways for us is that we had such a nice mix of port brewing beers and Abbey beers and kind of high super premium things that we were able to take a lot of the profits that came into the company and reinvest them. And at no point in time 
Um, did we dilute the ownership structure? And we bought almost everything on, on a cash basis. And for a long time, that, that kept us out of a banking situation, kept us out of covenants, kept us from, you know, having to make decisions that maybe we wouldn't have made or otherwise, but it allowed us to be very strong with the things that we chose to produce. And it also kept the stress a little bit lower, I think, just because we weren't beholden to metrics that maybe we didn't want to hit. You know, we weren't required to change a malt bill or a hot bill or not use ingredients because of the cost and things like that. We had a really robust, had a really robust sales platform and, and we sold a lot of great beers, but the mix was really, you know, stupendous from 22 ounce, 750 draft beer, super premium. Everything that we were doing had a lot of margin in it. And that was, I would say it was fun, but that made it a lot easier to run a business. Did you get to have any like, fun weekends supporting your beer in other states or like anything, any kind of fun trips that you did around the beer? Oh, I mean, there's been so many of them. We did the original Brett Pack thing where we all traveled to Belgium. That was fantastic. You know, I was lucky enough to get to go to work with Armando Belder at Grey Fontaine on a project. I was lucky enough to go to Saison de Pont and work with them, Olivier and, and his crew on a, on a beer. Yeah, the big takeaway is that one of the things that, that I've I've always wanted and I've, I've really made it kind of a mission is I never want to upset the Belgian brewers and I want to basically, I want to live in a world where they appreciate that we are Belgian adjacent and that we do things that really respect and revere what they've accomplished. But at the same time, by being a friend to their traditions, you know, we would love to be invited to be part of those traditions and we by getting a chance to blend with, with Armand and working with Olivier at DuPont. You know, those were bucket list kinds of things. So those have been really, really cool. Were there any, during some of those brew sessions together and just you know, chatting and talking, any big insights that they gave you? And they were like, holy crap, I can't believe I didn't know that. So the two stories that I love to tell, the one with working with Armand, you know, I took a bunch of bottles over of, of some of our sour beers and things that were not spontaneously fermented. And I'm not 100% sure how much beer he'd ever had that was sour in its basis that it hadn't been spontaneously fermented or at least Belgian produced. I mean, Rodenbach obviously is not spontaneous, but there's, there's a style to the, in a method of that production. You know, I, I was, I was given a chance to kind of you know, sit down and talk to him and I opened a bottle of Isabel Proximus for him and I explained how that beer was made and how it wasn't spontaneous. But, you know, when he finished kind of listening to me and glazed over, he, his comment was, you know, this is, he didn't say this is good. He basically just said, you might be onto something here, which was about the nicest thing that I think he could say to me, which was a, a true takeaway. And then the other part that was really fun was when we went to DuPont, they had never used American hops in their beer. And so we shipped over Amarillo, or Amarillo I think Amarillo Simcoe Mosaic. Uh, the whole goal was to take Saison DuPont and Americanize it in a, in a way. Um, we've been making Carnival, which is a Simcoe Amarillo Saison for a long time, and using that yeast. So I knew that the, the flavors would play together. But I just remember being on the brew deck the first time they cut open the box of the American hops, and the look on their face was, was just staggering. So much so that I think we brewed on a Friday, and then Olivier went into the brewery on a Saturday, and the fermentation was spewing like really strong citric and just a, a tremendously different aroma profile from the house yeast and the hops. And his comment to me at a later date was everybody in the brewery from the, the person in HR, the person in bills and receiving and people who were not brewers noticed how different the brewery smelled 
on the day that, that the fermentation kicked off and things that were from just that one process change. So that was kind of exciting. Yeah, that's cool. Just being able to, I don't want to say you taught them something new, but maybe in a way. It's kind of cool. It's just for them to open their eyes to like, you know, most everything that the pot was using at the time was kind of, you know, Styrians and Goldings and Kent things and, you know, Tetanet. But I mean, I can't imagine being a, let's say you were a 15 year person in, in accounts billing or, you know, and you walk in and, and you're like, why does it smell like oranges in the brewery today? You know, and then getting a chance to explain that—that's fun. That's uh, that's that's education. That's cool. And I imagine the beer tasted amazing, so I'm sure they enjoyed later being able to try it. Yeah, I, what I really loved about that beer was the fidelity. Like it, it was base Dupont, in it, and it had all of that. But then we were able to kind of blend in the real cool citrus tones and some of the some of the spicy notes from the hops. But when it was all said and done, you. You know, you, you could tell it was a DuPont beer. So what are some of the favorite beers you've ever made uh, at your place? You know, looking back over the years, you've clearly made a bunch of different ones, and they've clearly been kind of straight out of your imagination in most cases. What do you look back on and, and are the most proud of? You had mentioned earlier, you had mentioned sort of that farmhouse Duval thing. You know, we had a beer for a long time that was called Inferno, and it was our homage to Duval, and it was bottle-conditioned and, you know, four volumes of CO2 and tart and delicious and dry, and I, I still miss that beer, but it's we're threatening to bring it back in the next couple months. So I'm hoping that one gets to come around. You know, there's a lot of beers that kind of were imagined and put together that you just didn't really know. And two that come to mind, we had the original box set that we did. And there was a beer in the box set that we produced. It was called Track 8. And that was a version of our Judgment Day. And it went into bourbon barrels. And, you know, we somehow managed to pick up a really heavy coconut tone. And when it came time to, to kind of put the beer back together, it just felt like an oatmeal cookie to me. And it just had this really dense kind of flavor and, and chewy. And so we actually then chased down some cinnamon and some some chilies in it and turned it into this really amazing kind of hybrid oatmeal raisin cookie. But the cinnamon and the chilies really played well. And that was that predated a lot of the kind of pastry stuff that's going on right now. So that beer was really fun. And then we had gotten a hold of some cognac barrels and for whatever reason, just ended up putting a barley wine in, in these cognac barrels. And when we released the beer in 2015, it, it was super fiery. Like I'm talking like, don't light a match next to me, you know, or, or we're going to blow up. But somehow, you know, five to almost 10 years later, the beer has sat down and become, it's a 15% alcohol, you know, fire breathing thing, but it has now become a just sublime barrel aged beer. But that wasn't intentional. That wasn't one of those things. It's just more about, you know, kind of letting process take over. And the beer was not very good when it was young. It was just out of control. But 10 years later, you know, almost 10 years, it's become something that when I open a bottle of it, I'm just enamored with the way this thing is settled into a really soft and subtle drink. But it, that wasn't intentional by any stretch. Try to make a good beer. But but when we released it after two years in a cognac barrel, it didn't look or taste anything like this then. Yeah, but that's some of the exciting parts of, you know, doing that entire concept. You're allowing nature to create something with you. So you're not the only guy with a paintbrush, I guess, in a way. It, just, it kind of works as a collaboration. Makes it fun. Yeah. So we did a couple years ago. I think it'll be three years like this, this October. But we were able to, to secure some uh, Sauvignon Blanc grapes. And it had been something I'd wanted to do for a long time with some grape beers. And we made a Sauvignon Blanc beer that really, really nice called Pale Horse. And I'm looking forward to getting back into that universe where, you know, we have a chance to do more wine, wine-based things or grape-based things. Because I think, I think there's a 
lot of opportunity with the Oak and, and really cool stuff. And they don't have to be big case totals to be, to be very right. They, they could just be in my library for all I could. Well, I told you earlier I was going to mention one of the beers I had had from you guys. And I did a lot of really crazy dumb shit when I first started the brewery. But one of the things was when I first brewed the first batch was on a Monday. And I ended up going to LA, driving down to San Diego, flying out of San Diego from like Thursday to Sunday. Slept. I think I got into Austin at like 1.30, came straight into the brew house basically with like two hours of sleep and brewed my first 14-hour batch of beer on a system I hadn't dialed in yet. But the last hmm. brewery that I went to before I got on the airplane was yours. This was 2013, it would have been. Okay. And I remember having a barley wine and imperial stout blended together in a bottle. And granted, Delivers. I'm not from San Diego. I, you know, this is me kind of early in the, the scene a little bit. I was just enamored by the concept, taking these two big beers and blending them together. It was not, I hadn't ever seen that before. Uh, and I was just Curious, where does the inspiration for that come from? As someone who had never seen it, I thought that was a ballsy move. It turned out to be fantastic. It was an amazing beer. Yeah, that's our deliverance. It was a great beer. It still is. You know, I don't know where it came from, but I know that so deliverance was a blend of Angel Share aged in brandy barrels and Serpent Stout aged in bourbon barrels. And so there was a tension on the label where there was a tension between the angels and a soul being pulled from heaven or which was, was the soul going to heaven or hell. The tension was between you know good and evil so the good was the angel share and the evil was the serpent stout and so i think that the, the story built the beer meaning hey i have this sense of an image of angels and devils fighting for someone's soul we need something that would be a heaven beer and we need a hell beer and that's kind of where the heaven and hell kind of came from and then it just becomes a question of who who won the thing but yeah angels angel share barley wine brandy serpent stout bourbon and then a couple of years later, we were able to recreate that, but do it backwards. So the Serpent Stout was aged in brandy barrels and the Angel Share was aged in bourbon barrels. Both fantastic, phenomenal news. Uh, I don't know that I set out necessarily to just say, let's do this 50-50. It's just the narrative took the lead. Well, I can remember the first time that I blended beers together. And obviously by the end, that was a big part of what we did. And I was just terrified, you know, kind of how it was going to turn out. And just so I was I was definitely enamored by seeing something that I thought was such a unique and interesting concept. And I'm sure you've heard this by many other people, but you definitely inspired some of the beers in my brewery. So thanks for pushing that envelope for me. Well, that's good. So let's let's take another quick break. And then what I want to come back and get into is sort of where you saw the industry maybe slowed and sort of what happened. So let's go take a real quick break. We'll come right back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Well, welcome back. I want to thank you for uh, sticking in there. I know there's a lot to talk about. One of the things that I really want to get into is I think it's fascinating that you started when you started because you were able to see the craft beer industry evolve, change, and then get us to where we are today. 
And as a guy who opened in 2012 and then <laughs> sold in 2021, uh, you know, I was kind of in the middle of that, but you got to see before and after. So I'm curious, where did you see the industry start to change? I don't want to say in a way you didn't like, but in a way that maybe wasn't as beneficial for your business. Oh, that's probably when, probably back in about 2015, when local beer started really becoming hyper. And I think that there's two locations that really, well, three locations. You know, we had sold a decent amount of beer in, in Seattle and that market had always had some great breweries, but it got really small and hyper local. We had been selling a good amount of beer in Chicago and then the Chicago beer scene really blew up and there were a lot of small breweries in Chicago that just built the scene to something even bigger and better. And, you know, that same sort of thing happened in Boston. And so lots of places where we kind of planted our flag and kind of played in the the spoke, you know, the kind of the hub and then looking for the spoke, our hubs started kind of selling less and less. The distributors started seeing, you know, that, that local was where their focus was because that's what people were asking for. And, and so we, we lost portions of our business that we really couldn't defend. And there wasn't any reason to defend them because the people that were coming up were doing things that were equally as unique and interesting, you know, where where we had started 17 years ago, and we might have been one of the more unique things in the book, um, you know, that went away. And that's just because so many other people came to the party. It's always a hard one for people to understand. Again, I had your beer, and I like the the branding of it. I think it's more cohesive than most. There's a lot of reasons why I think side-by-side side, Lost Abbey would necessarily win, but by what margin? In my book, I use the example, too. If you make an IPA, and it's the best fucking IPA around, but the guy in Boston makes an IPA that's 15% less good than yours, consumer doesn't know the difference and they don't really care. Were you sort of dealing with that? Yeah, but you, you could also be talking about a 30% differential because he might be 15% less good, but he might be 15%, 20, 30, 40% better at the marketing. And now all of a sudden, you know, they've got a 40, 50% advantage in that, in that regard. So I, I think that it's interesting because the, the storytelling became a lot harder when there was less of a story to tell. And so, you know, the people that were winning in, in cities, you know, they were telling the story to the consumer right over the bar and in a great way. But own, own premise really, really took away a lot of legacy brands and a lot of legacy opportunity because when you can connect with the consumer that walks in and gives you full, full price and they say, I'll be back next week to buy another four pack, you know, you, you're creating long term relationships. And those, you know, those things are, are hard to do when you don't have a physical presence in cities. Did you notice that you were getting underpriced and in the sense of like, obviously you're shipping truckload, I mean, which your LTL at that point too, but the smaller batches are going to require more shipping to be added to the final cost of the beer. Were you having trouble to stay competitive on pricing? You know, that, that really happened in the last five years. Certainly the cost of ship to the East Coast got to a point where, you know, we were more in a, in a volume setting and there wasn't as much inherent margin. You know, when you send a case of 22-ounce bombers, the price on the shelf is less sensitive than a four-pack or a six-pack. You don't have the same capacity there. So, yeah, certainly when we got out of the 22-ounce business and started getting into the cans and flats and things like that, that shipping cost became almost too much prohibitive because you're not starting to book full truckloads. You're really, you're really in a bad place. So were there certain markets that kind of died quicker than other markets? And what did you do to pivot? Did you open new markets? Did you decide to dial in more in San Diego? What, what was the play? No, we, we certainly did a forced retrench in the sense that we just couldn't afford to send beer to places and that caused us to slow down, but I'm not exactly sure when, you know, kind of the X, Y axis met, but there was a point in time where the shipping costs became prohibitive, but we also needed a certain amount of beer to leave the building, you know, just to 
just to kind of keep the keep turning the screws. So they don't always work. And that's part of why we had to get smaller when we did. But not every drop that leaves the building is going to earn you the same dollar, you know, at a margin level. Somewhere in between, you've got kind of the cost of things and you've got to figure out where you're going to apply that. And obviously, the goal is to make the same margin across the board. But it's hard to do when you're in different markets. You mentioned that I had an issue similar where the shortest turnaround on a beer that I made outside of one that was sort of a banger was like three months. And so you mentioned you had beer in barrels for two years. You know, when that comes out, you have a fixed amount of liquid and you've got to get rid of that liquid. Were you able to make some adjustments there? Or did you just package it and hide it and decide to have beer for vintage stuff that's aged five, 10 years? You know, we threw a lot of beer away. There was a point in time where, you know, when we would go out to the barrel stacks and we realized that there wasn't a home for it, there weren't many ways to deal with it in terms of it's expensive to put it in a glass and store it. It takes space and things like that. But there's also a point in time where you've got to kind of cut your losses. And, you know, there was probably, let's just assume that most of the beer we were doing was anywhere from 15 to 18 months. So, you know, on a rolling basis, you're talking about a five-year period where if we had misprojected or projected and we were long, it's a lot of opportunity to create devaluation for your brand by putting too much of it out there or selling it at a new price. So we made a conscious decision not to release some things, um, which obviously was expensive, but it's far cheaper to pour it down the drain as beer than it is to put it in the box and store it for many, many years. But that being said, we do still have a very incredible vintage library and we've always put more beer away than we publish. I did that too. It's one of my favorite things I ever did because even two years later, I'm still drinking those beers. We talked a little bit about some of the different beers that you made. Did you start to feel a pressure to make more everyday products during this? It certainly changed the path because there was a point in time where we had a very large barrel inventory and committed a lot of space to the barrel inventory and you know relied on the, the dollar bills associated with those, those releases. And those things kind of started to slow up. And that definitely forced us to look at the portfolio. It forced us to look at the new releases, the innovation, if you will, and just asked a lot of questions about well, this is how we used to make money and this is how we used to be profitable. And now we're forced to do these things. What does that look like? And that it's a totally different universe. It's also a point of differentiation for us. You know, we were known for these beers. And then, you know, the, the sense of all of a sudden shelf turds became a big part of the conversation. Beers that used to be sought after were no longer sought after. People iterized every single release that they could to, you know, kind of choke the puppy to death and you know, they basically took things that had equity and then ran all the equity off the, off the cliff. I'm not sure how many brands have equity. I mean, people used to get in line for Goose Island releases. People used to get in line for all kinds of other barrel stuff and rarity and scarcity. And, you know, we had a lot of them. Other breweries in, in Southern California had them. I don't know exactly how many consumers are going to be getting in line, you know, right now for something that isn't necessarily put in a can and isn't necessarily something that, you know, maybe isn't already made by their neighbor, but isn't marketed as being different. Now, you definitely see a few of them out there that are still have kind of an anomalous following to them. And it's almost like when you ask the consumer, even they don't know why they're in line for it or why they seek after it. But It's almost like we just have to start the line to, to convince people to get in the line, right? <laughs> Put it on and Instagram. It's like, you know, we're, why is there a line? Because, you know, because there is. <laughs> why does it look like Tommy's entire extended family were at the, yeah, the building? <laughs> yeah. The, the psychology of the line is going to be huge, right? For getting people to get back in there. One other question I wanted to ask about the distributor situation. Did you ever have ones that you had to get away from? And was that ever a fight? And did it work out in your favor? So there was definitely been movement. Um, we have moved brands out of houses, into houses, across the aisle. 
I don't think we've ever had to really lawyer up to do something. So I feel pretty strongly that we had some very gentlemanly conversations. Some were painful, but they all came from a fair place of, of reality. And to be very honest and transparent, you know, our brands are pretty small. So they don't come with a tremendous amount of dollar bills exchanged and they don't hit a lot of the real triggers and hallmarks, you know, greater than 3% of total, total sales and things and case units and stuff. Most distributors that have our brands or had our brands weren't necessarily relying on our brands to pay the bills as much as they were relying on them to provide a lot of cash. There's still definitely ones out there that I've experienced and I've definitely talked to other owners that have experienced that hung on for whatever reasons they chose to, but they were a big part of the reason why some of these guys have gone out of business. So just curious, do you have any insight into how you might have facilitated that conversation differently so that it stayed gentlemanly? Because <laughs> it definitely hasn't for everybody else. You know, I think I think it's like divorce. I think it's one of those situations where if you wait to the last minute to go to counseling, that you're probably going to find yourself in a bad spot or in one that's less equitable or less shared. You know, you can, I mean, everybody's going to their distributor right now and, and all of their distributors are doing the same stuff. The industry is really tough. People are saying it's not what it used to be. And how do you all stay on the same page? It's about having realistic expectations. But the problem is, is a lot of breweries are struggling. You know, the expectation is, is that, you know, I used to sell 15% more beer with you three years ago, and I want that back. And then they say, well, we can't get it back because you're not investing in in the, the sales team or the innovation or these pieces. And everybody has to be kind of in the same place, but nobody's in the same place right now. So for me, you know, we always at least knew what the contract said. We always knew what case law, you know, by by territory said or by by region. At a minimum, you need to be educated and you need to have a sense of why and how. And sometimes distributors, have they, they see it differently than you might, but that doesn't mean that they are unwilling to do things. It just means that everybody should be on the same page. Sure. Good advice. Talk to me about this growing down. I don't know if it's a term that you guys sort of came up with, but no one else in the brewing industry that I've heard has used it. Like, how did that come about, the decision to make these, I guess you'd call them cuts, right? I'm pretty confident. I don't want to take credit for coining it. I know that we really made a concerted effort to use that as part of the conversation. I referenced the narrative earlier. I come from a storytelling background, so you want you want to be able to frame it. And it's kind of like, this is the hook. This is why it's important. And by calling it growing down, nobody ever talks about it, right-sizing, whatever. But growing down, is it's a mentality. It's about growing to a place that you can be sustainable. So when I kind of worked on, on smithing this sense of where we were going, it was we're not going away. We're going to save this because we're important enough to be saved. But in order to get to where we need to be going, we need to grow to a place that's sustainable. That's where growing down came. When you get to the place where you've grown down to be sustainable, then you can stop, reimagine what you want to be, and determine what is sustainable and not. Too often in the last 10 years, 15 years, people have, have basically built breweries with the mantra that growth is a given, and growth is no longer a given. And so now what are you going to do if you can't grow your business year over year? And growth is important because you need to be able to grow if you're going to sustain cost of goods, rent increases, payrolls, like all these things. But if you can't grow, what's your plan? And I think that part of growing down is announcing that there's a different plan. That's obviously a challenge for some people to get to. And many of the people I've interviewed maybe had faced a similar situation that you did and maybe didn't react quickly enough or maybe didn't love their business as much as you clearly do. But how did... Like, how did that conversation go? You had partners too. So was it everyone's on board? We had these KPIs and we just didn't meet them. So the decision kind of made itself. Or 
you know, how did that conversation go to, this is a big step, right? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it was easy for us because we had spent so many years being profitable. And then I think the first year to two years we were open, you know, we didn't show a profit. And then I think from years three through 14, we were profitable. And then at year 14, you know, we, we lost money for the first time in, in a long time. And then it was like, well, what the hell happened? And then you start to look around and understand the business got out of whack. And one of the ways it got out of whack was we had too much square footage. We committed to growth and we committed to, to a barrel program that we didn't need anymore at that level. So for us, it was very easy to walk into the room and be like, we are out of balance. This company can't hit the triggers, the KPIs that you speak of. We could put a KPI on the wall and we wouldn't be able to hit it because we wouldn't be able to financially hit those metrics. We could go out and we could sell more beer. My financial guy, Carl, and I talk all the time that if you basically come to work with a mantra that sales cures all, basically you sell more beer, it will fix everything. Well, that's wrong because there's a lot of cost of good things that even though you could sell 5,000 more barrels, you're not going to get the margin gains because the cost of goods are going down. And you're not seeing efficiencies in scale because there is no scale in selling 5,000 more barrels. So sales doesn't necessarily cure all. Yes, it grows your top line, but that doesn't necessarily contribute to your bottom line if the things you're doing don't have contributed margin in that regard. So stop saying sales will fix everything. But then it became obvious that we were just too big. We had 40,000 square feet of space. We had too much in payroll. We had too much cost of sales at the same time when all the malt costs were going up, all the transportation costs were going up, cardboard costs went up, CO2 shortages, the price of hops, blah, blah, go down the list. Like it's, it's incredible to look at every input that a brewer went through in the last three years, three to five years, and almost every single input went up at an accelerated rate that wasn't necessarily predictable. So for my partners and I, the biggest thing that we saw for the growing down was that we saw the window, the light into the tunnel was our lease was expiring on May 31st of this year. And we knew that we had to make a profound change at that point in time in order to break this thing down. Um, we had to get a lot smaller, and that was the window for getting smaller. So it helped that you had that target. But actually, I'm curious, did you even talk about what the lease renewal rate was going to be? Oh, no. So, I mean, when we started, a couple of things are really important here. The first of which is that we are in a business park environment. So we, we are not in control of our own destiny. We don't own the building, the land. We don't have a REIT. We don't have a whole kinds of things that we're working with that are in our favor. We're not part of a conglomerate that says, okay, we own part of your company and we'll, we'll lease you the land. So we're wholly independent in that regard. When we first started, our fully loaded triple net lease was like less than a dollar a square foot. And they wanted us to renew long term at a buck 47 a square foot. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. It was very obvious that that was a big easy note. Even in so much as we looked at trying to go from 40,000 to 20,000 square feet, it was a 35% increase in the cost of occupancy. That even though we would be losing, shedding all that space, mm -hmm. it wasn't almost tenable because we were looking at a 50% reduction in square footage and a nearly 30, 35% increase in wow. which made it almost, which made it almost the same. Being in the greater San Diego area, I'm surprised. I've talked to people that are three, five times the rent price at renewal. And there's no way you're already losing money. You sure as hell can't five X your rent. It's crazy. Probably one of the things that I'm most fascinated about just from the process piece of it. You said you talked to your financial guy a lot. How did you pick where? So, you know, obviously you're here, right? 40,000 yeah. square feet, your cost structure X. How do you say cost structure has to be X minus what? Like, did you run a bunch of uh, pro formas and just, you know, one one had red in it, so you kept cutting and finally you found a black or, you know, how, how did that process go? I'm fascinated. We were producing three high-level brands. We had the Port Brewing brands, 
we'd launched the hop concept brands. And then of course we had the lost Abbey brands and they all behave moderately differently. Although the port brands and the hop concept brands are more similar in the sense that they're can heavy draft focused, basically craft brands. Mm -hmm. And they don't require a sour barrel program. They don't require a sour barrel space. They don't require, you know, things that are very different in that regard. So we ultimately needed to basically take the portfolio of brands and, and cut them in half or, or separate so that the small things could be small and the big things could be bigger. What we ended up looking at was here's the port and hop concept brands, which are definitely West Coast back to that hop focus, hop forward, et cetera. Very craft on point today. And we said to Pete's port, hey, why don't you guys take these brands, keep the facility that, that can make them, you know, that no longer needs the barrel side. And we cut all that out and we moved lost abbey off campus and by getting to a new place the lost abbey brands could be a lot smaller in terms of total volume total production brewery capacity things like that so it was very structured in the sense of how the how and why we were trying to use one facility to do three things when in fact the one facility needed to do one thing and the second facility needed to do the other so is that what you ended up doing is segmenting into different facilities yeah so the pizza port side of it basically took port brewing and hot concept and kept our San Marcos facility, the one that we that we started in, and they're producing those brands in, in, in San Marcos. And we moved the Lost Abbey brands off-site to a new facility in Vista that we're subleasing from Mother Earth Brewing Company. And we're on a sublease for the next two years until we determine what makes the most sense. But now we're producing beer on a 20-barrel system with 60-barrel fermenters being the biggest, and we can brew 20s, 40s, or 60s. And that allows us to have great scale and allows for innovation and things, as well as now really focusing on our tasting room pub business. We have three satellite tasting rooms, plus we're building back a fourth tasting room in Vista, and that's half of our total dollars that we sold internally. So when you started talking about the reds and the blacks and kind of what the what the pro formas look like, well, hospitality is now the largest pillar in our business for sales, sales to ourselves. And therefore, we need a much smaller system to produce beer. Well, I definitely want to dig into that and how that works. And I have a few different kind of what I think are important questions about it. But let's take a quick break. I'm going to open another beer and then we will finish out the last segment with the last of the amazing things that come out of your head. Perfect. I'll be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. Welcome back. I'm going to do my best to get all the questions that I feel need to be asked out before the end. But if I forget something, please let me know. One question I have is when it comes to moving out of your building, that is never as clean and simple and easy as it sounds. Like, hey, the lease was up and we took off. What was that like? Were you able to get out by May 31st? <laughs> like, how did that go? Yeah. Yes. Yes, we actually got out by May 31st. It almost killed me, but it was, we'd been in that space since 2006. So it was a lot of extra stuff. You know, we, we chucked a lot of beer 
in general, it just was kind of heartbreaking, but there was no place to put it. We moved into a 10,000 square foot building and that, that's not that big. Started talking about refrigeration and other things. And so that was a lot of work. We almost are moved out. We still have some stuff that's in the building that Pete Sport's been nice enough to let us kind of just store there because it's not burning a hole in the pocket. But uh, that process was difficult. And the question is, is, you know, how did we go about it? It's kind of like you asked about, like, the distributor side of things. You kind of just have to share in the stuff. We left our kegging line, we left our centrifuge. We left the 30-barrel brew house, the boilers, the silos, all that stuff. But that was all stuff of scale that we couldn't really do anything with. Yeah, so what we did focus on was we focused on anything that we would have needed to produce sour beer, barrel beer. And we took all of the lab equipment, which I, I referenced earlier as being a big part of it for us. Um, you know, we had heavily invested in the lab, in the lab space and they already had a lab at Pizza Port. So that wasn't as big of a deal, but it was a huge deal for us if we're going to continue to be able to measure and, and, and really improve our process. You know, we needed that stuff. And, and I'm feeling very good about the fact that we were able to, to really carve out exactly what we needed to make great beer moving forward. And I'm very excited. You know, we're about 20 batches of beer into the new space and just the beers of them you know for the learning curve of learning curves it's been good I'm very very excited about what well, sounds like i don't want to say lucky situation because clearly you have friends in the industry and you know people but being able to find ten thousand square feet you can rent that also I, I assume are they brewing beer on their system for you then no we're on an alternating proprietorship so we're currently the brewery the sole brewery tenant but they have the right to make beer if they need to they've basically handed us the keys to the building and said this is for you guys, and you know, if, if we need something, we'll let you know. But we're not anticipating that, that they're going to come over the top and, and drop stuff in. Certainly, it'd be very easy to do. But yeah, it's it was probably of, of anything about this whole process that sort of fortuitous providence, karma, whatever you want to call it. Like that wasn't what initiated. Kind of referenced earlier that you know that we, the lease was up and we had to do something. And we had other options, but they weren't necessarily this clean and they involve a few of my friends locally, you know, making beer for us in different in different environments and then kind of homogenizing it and you know, centralizing it. But it would have probably been more, um, you know, contract work with some of my friends and, you know, doing beers in different facilities and it wouldn't be as clean as, hey, we're getting out of bed and we're mashing in this morning and, and then when we're done, it's going to land in a keg and it's going next door. It would have been a lot more complicated. You don't have a tasting room in that facility? Currently, no. I'm waiting for the paperwork to come through, and we will build one. But at this point, you can't come to the Space Investor right now and drink beer. So that was a big piece of your pivot, though, right? Is that you wanted to create beer there, and ultimately you'll have a tasting room. Yeah, so the biggest hurdle for us was that we looked at other breweries to work with on an alt-prop level, and they didn't have an ability for us to lean into having a tasting room space. But when we took on some of the new investment that we have, we focused on the hospitality. You know, again, we talked about it being a, a pillar of, of kind of our profitability and our ability to hand sell and to be, you know, in the space of making these kinds of beers. We need to communicate with the consumer. And that's really hard to do unless you have a bar top and an ability to tell that story. Even doing it through the retail channel right now is quite difficult because you know, retailers just aren't bringing in a lot of these unique beers. They don't sell, they don't turn, they don't want them. Somebody explained once because you can buy a case of six, of six packs and you only need four turns to move it and get a new case, 12 turns on a case of bottles. And uh, this is when I was still selling bottles and I was like, shit, I'm going to get out of this industry. <laughs> right. But the 12 bottle thing is worth three to one. And, you know, and now all of a sudden, no, it's it's crazy. But yeah, the, the six pack, the volume business is where everybody wants to live. But Unfortunately, there's a lot of breweries now that are in four pack cans who don't have volume and don't have, you know, velocity, but now they're clogging the shelf space and that's fine. 
but they're not getting any of the margin that comes along from something that doesn't turn over as fast. And ultimately for them, it's really difficult. I want to get back to a point in time where we figure out how to sell things that have velocity, that have margin. It's got to be part of where we're headed. That's kind of where you were, right, back in the day. But that's where the industry was. And now the industry is same, same, and everybody's everybody's got the same product, everybody's got the same margins, and everybody's got the same kind of storytelling. But then the question just becomes is who's winning and, and why? Some of the biggest wins right now are coming from very large breweries selling beer incredibly cheap, but at the same time, they're able to produce it and make money on that because you know, it's the, the McDonald's mentality. But there's a lot of breweries that haven't figured out right now two years how to absorb all the hits that came from COVID and cost of goods and just general business. But if you can't absorb those costs, then, then you'll be, you'll be on your podcast. And- Talk to me about the pivot to hospitality because obviously that's a different type of business. And as much as I agree, there's money there. You're competing with somebody different, you know, other bars and restaurants in a sense that that, how do you present that differently? How do you build your business in a way that's going to compete with the craft beer bar? So I think for us, that's important is that, you know, we spent the first, nine years of our business being a single location brewery and tasting. So we were a warehouse company from 2006 to 2015. And the only way you could sample our beer when you you came to town in 2013, you came to the San Marcos location. Mm -hmm. So we had a big tasting room presence. You would go drink in a warehouse and people love to do that, love to go, go drink beer where beer was made. And then in 2015, we opened our first satellite tasting room location. And that satellite location was was a great off-campus place for us to reach drinkers that didn't necessarily come to San Marcos or even visit breweries. So that was a great thing. But then we started to be into a situation where in 2019, we opened the location I'm sitting in now, the sanctuary. And now all of a sudden, we had three tasting room locations, two of which were off-campus. And hospitality, while we were doing a great job of it you know, at the main facility, Now we were more like a a localized community center, tasting room. People that came here maybe didn't know the people that worked at the brewery, had never met the brewer, et cetera. And in order to be successful in these environments, people want new things. They want, they want turnover. And you take a 30 barrel brew house and you try to, try to send it into a a three tasting room environment. You know, you, you don't have flexibility. And that's when we started to understand that our business model had really shifted. And that was dovetailed kind of into the same conversation we were having earlier about truckloads of 10, you know, 10 to 12 LTL shipments to Boston started being three to four pallets. And that, that no longer meant the, that the rate of sale on our beer leaving the building and truckloads of things. And so all of a sudden the truckloads of things that left the building that used to create large checks from distributors then became less and less. And we were holding inventory longer. And now all of a sudden, we needed new things for the tasting rooms, and we just didn't have a brewery that was built to do that. The best analogy would be to buy a sports car and tell the world you were going to go, you know, you were going to go off-roading, right? Like, yeah, you can do it until you hit a rock. <laughs> and, you know, that's, you know, we basically just, we had the wrong equipment to do what needed to be done. What is, and I haven't been into the sanctuary. What is the concept at your place? And one of the questions, let, let me tell that in. That one of the questions would be when I had my brewery and we had mixed culture beer and we're in a downtown area in the middle of Texas with a bunch of rednecks, uh, not having an IPA, not having a Pilsner was a really big problem for us. So we started doing guest beer. What does that lineup look like for you and how do you solve all the problems for all the consumers? The biggest thing that we've determined is that we have a great portfolio, even 
top to bottom on the Abbey side, we have, you know, with light flavored lager all the way up to barrel, heavy barrel sour. You know, we have a very expressive range of beer. More than anything, you know, our, our tap room here has 16 beers on tap. And then we do can pours so that we can augment, you know, what's on the list and stuff. But when it basically comes down to it is, is that the consumer, more often than not, that the general consumer is looking for probably about eight beers in total from a, a yellow one to a, an IPA one to a pale ale one to a, maybe they want something tart these days or hazy. And as long as we have that base eight, they can rotate. You know, the lager doesn't always have to be the same lager. Um, you know, the hoppy one doesn't always have to be the same, but, you know, maybe the hazy one needs to be on all the time. You know, those kinds of things. As long as we build an outward facing sense of the, the eight, then the rest of it can really be whatever it wants to be. We're really good because we win at the things that are 8 to 16 or 8 to 30, you know. I mean, we have such a, a depth of, of barrel and library and other stuff that to fill out the beer list is pretty damn easy for us. But when it's all said and done, you know, we still have to be able to make sure that, that the eight beers on the undercard are really interesting. And they have to turn over. That was impossible to do on a 30 beer system. Yeah. You should have enough pubs to handle that. And part of that's even like, some of those beers don't go into package. Like, you know, I was drinking a blonde ale earlier that we're currently not canning. But, you know, if we were to can it, I wouldn't be able to sell it out in the market. You know, I could send 50 cases through my through the pub environment. But that's now we're now we're going back to a whole different things. Changeovers, you know, turning a machine on to do 50 cases. None of those things make sense unless unless you're small enough and nimble enough to do so. And at a 30 barrel level, we just we were never going to do that. With the, the tasting room environment, is there a or are there a specific number of pubs that you're sort of targeting that are you going to open new ones? Does, does the current footprint really sustain the brewery or do you need more? That is the million dollar question. And I can answer it because I've, I actually you were talking about reds and blacks and things earlier. As I said earlier, Carl and I used to say that sales will fix everything. The problem with tasting rooms right now is that there is a lot of them. And let's just take San Diego as an example. There's there's 150 breweries in San Diego at this moment, and there's probably another 150 plus tasting. So you've got 300 craft, you know, craft examples. We have three satellite tasting rooms, and we're looking at building a fourth one. So you know, the number could be well north of three to 400 craft specific locations. That's insane when you're talking about competition. For us, I, I used to think that I knew that any tasting room could be successful in terms of if, if it penciled out your occupancy, your poor costs, it would make sense. But then there's a lot of soft costs. There's a lot of costs associated with maintenance, delivery, insurance, cable bills, and things. So I've become very bullish these days that there's a real threshold for me personally about opening another tasting room. And that, that, that's a gross number that's far above what I used to think it would be. But I think it's important that people understand that you could open a tasting room and it could do $300,000 in sales. But against that 300000 you have to manage it. You have to deal with it, paperwork, filings, payroll, all this stuff. And when it's all said and done, if you make 15% on it, you're talking $45,000. Like, is that really going to move a big needle at some point? And yeah, it'll definitely grow your top line. But if you have four of those locations that are doing 45000 a year in profit, What's it costing you to manage those facilities? You're probably not going to make 45K at each one, given the costs associated with having an empire of pubs making you 45K. Yeah. Well, before I did this, I owned eight fitness centers in eight different cities, and it's kind of the same thing. There's always two dogs. No matter what was going on every month, 
two sucked, two were killing it, and everybody else is sort of in the middle. And so uh, yeah. they're not all going to do 45, but as long as the average is 45, you still come out ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, it just became very obvious to me on some levels that you could be a business owner and you could say, oh, that, that one's turning a profit, but a profit could be a dollar. That doesn't fix when the compressor goes down on the refrigerator and it's two grand, right? So somewhere in here, there has to be a really compelling reason to be open and, and compelling reasons really, you know, get you to total net income of the overarching business. But tap rooms are expensive if they're not running at a high level, because if you're not catching the efficiencies of delivering multiple kegs and running the right labor percentage and things, then all of a sudden you're just in a spot where it doesn't really work yeah you can make a dollar at the end of the year but what did you have to spend to make that dollar? i know that that's happening a lot more than than probably historically we're seeing less and less profitable tasting rooms satellite tasting rooms than previous meaning you guys in your business or your no not us just i think i apologize it's a generalization but i think that there's a lot of breweries that woke up and said my god we just had a satellite you know own premise gets us our own margin and we can make money on that but then there's all the other costs associated with it. And somewhere in there, you know, there's plenty of satellite tasting rooms that are running around making 200, 300,000 in total sales. And somewhere in between all the costs associated with delivering and death by a thousand cuts, you have to cross the threshold. And that, that threshold's a lot higher. Well, I can't tell you how many times I'd seen somebody move into a building, open a business, and then the triple net reconciliation happens on the second or third year and they get a bill for like $20,000 too. So even though you think you made money, Six months later, you're like, oh, shit, I got a bill for last year. Yeah, I mean, we had we had that happen to us in San Marcos at the main facility. You know, we, we were in this big building, and then we signed up for the 40,000 square feet of total space, and the landlord sold the building. Mm. And when the landlord sold the building, it hadn't been reconciled at a tax level in over 12 or 15 years. And so the tax basis jumped by whatever it went from that to that. But then we were on the hook for 66% of the total building value. And our tax base is tripled. So, you know, you know, I said sort of soft, soft costs earlier, or, you know, the thousand cuts, but there are a lot of places that don't necessarily show up on a pure balance sheet level or an unannotated balance sheet, you know, where you're like, well, yeah, we made money last year and then $20,000 to the other side, whether it's, you know, three compressors took a shit or, you know, somebody drove into the front. Like there's plenty of ways, but, you know, again, if you're, if you're running on a on a very thin margin basis and someone something comes up that's 10k and you your net income is 45,000 it you know evaporates in a hurry. Yeah, I saw a yeah. brewery that went out of business in Texas years ago and we have one of the more expensive brewery licenses but in state guys it's like 4 grand for every 2 years and they had done a uh, Kickstarter for their for their license basically and you're like, "Well, you're gone. I mean, if you can't afford your license at that point, if, you're right, if, right. If you can't pay your car insurance and the gas, you should be driving the car, right? So one big question that I, I don't know if you know the answer yet, because obviously you just moved and you're trying to figure it all out. But are there any amazing Lost Abbey beers that aren't going to be made anymore based on growing down in the new model? Um, that's a darn good question. And I would have to answer that, of course. Somewhere in the process, I'm not naive enough to think that that's the case. You know, we're going to protect the best ones and we're going to do our darndest to ensure that. But I've been spending a lot of time lately trying to understand our relationship to, you know, modern day and how much investment we're going to put into barrels and stacking stuff and things like that because of the costs. And, and I know that our sour beer program is, is good. 
We have a lot of leftover beer from San Marcos that we need to move to Vista that's that's finished and is in good condition. I need to reload a bunch of the non-sour barrels and then determine which of those brands have the most equity or the best capacity to, to sell themselves. But what we've been able to accomplish in a very short timeline in terms of moving is it's going to have some collateral damage. I just don't know exactly what it is yet. But what I'm trying to do is make sure that, you know, we understand in the next two years how to come out of this. And then we have to put something on hiatus for two years. That's not the worst thing. You know, we got in trouble trying to be too much to too many. And right now I'm, I'm very focused on not making those same bad decisions. So rather than loading up 20 barrels of red poppy, just for the sake of saying we've done it every year since we opened, you know, maybe that doesn't make sense. So push pause long enough to uh, go to the bathroom, rewind and start over. I give you a massive thumbs up because I can tell you one of the reasons I sold my breweries when I was faced with those decisions, I decided that I didn't want to do it anymore. And I was much smaller scale and obviously not near as popular. So take that for what it's worth. But those are things that I truly missed. And so I, I hope you're at least able to make the ones that you truly love. And so maybe you have to get rid of some to do that. But yeah, the hardest part about the move, and this has been kind of the, the internal dialogue is just, you know, when you put things on hold, sometimes they don't come back on a timeline that you want them to. But right now, I'm very focused on we had to move. That's a huge, you know, it's almost like having major surgery. And, you know, now we have to restart, we have to create cash flow basis. And then we can start talking about all of those things that were fun projects are really amazing, but they don't necessarily pay the bills the same way. So like I mentioned earlier, we have a deep library of bottles, we have a massive library of vintage kegs. And as long as we don't lose sight of those are the things that made us the Lost Abbey, we'll be okay. But, you know, we're going to be on at least a six month to a year mission where we just have to keep, you know, we just got to get our feet back underneath us. And like I said earlier, I'm very proud of the beers that have been coming out of the brewery that are clean and, you know, not necessarily all the things that people associate us with, but they are amazingly well-crafted beers. And then that just speaks to, we didn't lose our, our way, right? We didn't start making shit beer just to pay the bills. And then we can get to the point where a year from now, we can release a barrel age, something that, that came from this facility that's awesome and tell the story of why we were able to make it awesome in the new facility. Yeah, that's cool. So like I said, I'm not going to be able to ask all the questions I want to ask, but there's one that I do not want to get out of here without asking you. And that is, I reached out to you because I was fascinated by the fact that you had made this decision, which was a hard decision, but that you made it publicly, which was in some ways for a lot of people I talked to even harder. Uh, big question. Should you have done this earlier? And if so, when should you have done it? I mean, I think the answer is, yeah, we probably should have done it a lot sooner. There was a lot of complexity to our, we unwound a lot of stuff, but the process of getting smaller absolutely should have been on the table a long time ago. I'm not sure how it would have played out with the landlord. I'm not sure how it would have played out in terms of some of those bigger conversations. You know, we went from being a 35 employee company in the fall of last year to being a 10 employee you know, company in, in March. And, you know, along the way we kept making cuts and those cuts were very painful. The thought process was get going, make decisions that should improve things. But at some point it became clear that the only way to save it was to cut the leg off, right? Like really we couldn't keep trying to, to make five people decisions. We had to make 
30 people to soon. Today, we're a company of four to five employees on the production side, and we have the hospitality team, but we're a much smaller company than we ever used to be. But we're not trying to be the same company. We're trying to be the same great brewery with the quality of the beer we make, but who we get to and where we get to and, and what those things look like are not the same. Yeah, we should have done that a long time ago, but anybody that's listening to this podcast right now who wants to reach out, I'll answer the emails all day long. We came out and we were very honest about it because I think there's a lot of people that aren't doing the, the honest analysis or maybe are being honest about it but not implementing it and maybe scared to implement it because, you know, there's some of the conversations where we should just close the door. And, and that's that's always got to be part of the conversation, right? So, you know, I... I felt like we'd come a long ways and we'd come too far, not that we'd come too far to fail, but that we'd come too far not to try. And so we, we decided to give it a try. So far, everything you've said seems to make sense as far as you know what I understand in the industry. And again, I'm one guy from Texas who only knows so much, but I think that you're on the right path and I'm very curious to kind of watch how that evolves. You, you've proven that you can pivot and you can pivot aggressively. And I think that's an important part of every business. But also having gone through those struggles, I don't want to say whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. In some ways, it can leave some lingering effects. But at the end of the day, you do learn a lot from failure, which is the whole concept of this podcast. So, yeah, hopefully that, that makes the business overall stronger. So, I'm, I'm, again, I'm very curious to see how it kind of plays out. As a final takeaway, I think it's important to note that every entrepreneur, fear or otherwise, every entrepreneur knows that failure is a possibility. And that at some point, many, many people have to come to the realization that failure is is not only imminent, but it's here. And we got to a point where we decided that failure was imminent and that the only thing that we had to decide was whether it was now or was it survivable. And some people need to understand that failure is has come for you and, and that, that you cannot you cannot get your way out of it. Don't double down on bad behavior or bad some what I think is really important is that people understand is that it's okay to fail. That's not the easiest thing to, to play connect the dots with. There's a lot of emotions that go around it, so that makes it harder for sure. Yeah. Well, so I completely appreciate you sharing. Yeah, I'd heard some of it, but just being able to connect all the dots. And again, I've always been a fan of your brewery. Going to link your email in the show notes so that people can get in touch Perfect. with you if they want to. Yeah. But how do they find Lost Abbey online, in person? How do we find you? It's a lot harder to find us these days because we're not shipping a lot of beer places, sadly. You know, we're going to be working on that. But, uh, you know, right now we're very Southern California focused. Um, we do still have a, a distributor in Northern California, Breakthrough Beverage, thankfully. You know, we're working on backfilling some of the channels. Moving was very difficult. We had to kind of just prioritize kind of trimming down to, to get out of the building. And so shipments kind of slow down a little bit. But, you know, I would tell you to follow our socials, but we're not really pushing a lot of information out currently. So push things through my email, Tommy at lostabby.com, and uh, I'll do my best to tell you where, where we're living. Well, thanks for sharing. Enjoy that California sunshine, and hopefully I'll see you soon. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the crapper industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, 
I'll buy you a beer, Seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.